0: All right, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 125 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the postmodern high rise episode of the SLS cast, specifically Boston's. Postmodern high-rise, because 125 High Street happens to be a 30-floor postmodern high-rise in the financial district of Boston, Massachusetts. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, with a little bit of that geographical knowledge for Boston coming to you, this, of course, is Matt and sitting on the would-be cool... If Daniel Craig thought it was cool Sony phone to be used in the next Bond movie, which won't be because Daniel Craig didn't think Sony phones were cool, it's...
1: Tim, the allergies are kicking my ass. How are you doing this week, Matthias? I am doing okay.
0: Um, apparently, I'm not having to do, deal with that.
1: I know, and <laughs> like, they, also with using and, oh, so wait, paper. you finally caught the you
0: caught the plant bukaki. I, that I what did. Happened?
1: Yeah, after listening to the first 20 minutes of the 69 Extravaganza uh, episode, I I did catch the plant bukaki. Well, did you catch, did you catch the transition. karaoke bukkake? Because I still haven't figured out what the fuck that was supposed to be. I, I don't. I just think a lot of people were drunk and just making up stuff as they were going along. But no, I can, here I, here I am with, with my allergies. Not with any tissues, but with toilet paper. So I have, you know, on, on top of the allergies, I'm also huffing the little dusk toilet paper particles, which is kind of, you know, it's a little disheartening in a way, you know? No, I understand. That's why I always keep uh, a hefty
0: supply of puffs plus lotion on hand so that in the event of sudden strike of any kind of nose-blowing scenario, I have comfort on my nose.
1: I didn't strike you as a puffs with aloe, with or not aloe, with lotion type of guy. I, I, I thought of you were either the one with, a, with the big bear on it, uh, because you remind me of a big bear sometimes. <laughs> or you go for the really cheap toilet paper that just like scrapes the lining of your butthole as you're no, wiping. No, so no, you I... know you're getting that pristine clean.
0: Yeah, what happened was this a few years ago, uh, I mean, I literally, I was using the TP, and I get, I've got the quilted northern, man. That's what I use for the anal region when you need to wipe. Because, by God, if you've got to rub paper on your ass, you may as well use something comfortable. And I, so I was using the Quilted Northern, and I had just been so sick that, I mean, I was just blowing my nose all the time. And I mean, my nose, my upper lip, I mean, everything was just raw. Like, literally, like, raw, almost to the point where I thought it was going to bleed. So I broke down and bought some Puffs Plus Lotion. I was like, well, this stuff is supposed to be nice. It's always got a little lotion in it or whatever. And, man, I'll tell you what, it changed my fucking world. (laughs) I have been using Puffs Plus Lotion. And I'm not joking. I've got a box right here. That's it right there sitting here right at the computer desk. And I always have it handy just in case. Whenever I run out, I make sure to go down to the store, buy a three-pack. We put one in the car, keep one in the bedroom. We love the Puffs. So we have the Puffs handy, and then, of course, the Quilted Northern for the TP action. So are we getting paid by Quilter Northern to, uh... (laughs) That would be nice. I don't even know. Are Quilted Northern and Puffs owned by the same people? They should
1: be. Why not? They they cost pretty much the same. (laughs) And indeed. Indeed. But other than uh, getting the allergy action, which is no fun, how was your week, sir? My my week was good. I I wasn't able to join the 69 episode, uh the big orgy that was uh the big opus of a cross podcast between Midnight Movie Nights and Johnny White Trash and among oh, others. I've got the list right here. I've got the list. we had uh uh Netheads came
0: on, the and they're uh, at Nethead ww, uh, we had movie nights pod uh, uh, midnight movie nights. So that's at midnight movie nights. I'm sorry, good lord, at movie nights pod nights with a k. Uh, we had the SLS cast, of course. That was us at the SLS cast. We had we're not here to please you, which was uh, at w a n h t p y. And then of course Johnny White Trash. Um, so. His show was represented. And that's at Team White Trash. We, th- his lovely wife uh, was on there as well. So that's at O M G W T F Honey with a U and Rebel Stoke Jim. So at Rebel Stoke Jim. That's a whole lot of fucking Twitter people. There was it was like this conglomerate. It it, it, it wasn't just a sixty nine episode. It was like an orgy episode of all of these wonderful shows. So
1: well, sixty nine can still take place within a orgy. Y- yeah. I guess no, that's true. That's so, true. yeah, I wasn't able to be, uh, be a part of that uh, production. I was at the uh, the Magic Mountain, the Six Flags Magic Mountain theme park, and I, I got to say, the, the girlfriend, she had to write a complaint letter today. So she actually took the time, wrote a full-page complaint letter, and mailed it to them. So- Good lord, what? What the hell happened? Well, it was a Saturday, and we got there. Uh, We went for a friend of hers' uh, birthday, so it was, you know, two couples, four of us were there. And we thought, well, to ride all the rides we want to go on, if we got there around noon or one o'clock, which was a couple hours after the place opened, maybe, possibly maybe, the lines wouldn't be as bad. So, you know, we can spend the whole day there, but not completely burn ourselves out. Well, what didn't add to you know, there being a a ton of people actually there, was the fact that most of the rides only had one cart going at a time. You see, normally, whenever you are on the roller coaster, you know, you're enjoying the ride, there is a cart queuing right behind you so that whenever your ride is finished, the one before you can go, you know, so there's no time wasted with getting people onto the ride and buckled in and all that stuff. So uh, most of the rides were only one cart at a time. And so what could have been like an hour wait for a popular ride turned out to be like a three hour wait for that ride. So needless to say.
0: So you didn't you didn't just cave and buy the and just buy the the ride access because I figured that's what they would be doing. Oh, the one
1: hundred (laughs) and twenty dollar. Yeah. Walk on to the rides. You could have done them all in like 40 minutes. That's the principle of the matter. It's it's the principal Matthias. <laughs> the oh, <I>, principal. <laughs> I understand.
0: Universal does the same thing out in Orlando, so you can literally yeah. just buy walk-on access to the ride, and uh, I'm sure there are people that do it. I, I hate to say it. It's it's it pisses me off, and I'm ashamed of myself. But I would I would just buy the access. I don't like waiting.
1: Yeah, I, for now on, I probably will do that. But we went on four rides, not including the carousel. We went on three rides. Wow. Yes. Three roller coasters. Depressing. That's
0: very, I'm sorry to hear that. I all know. Right.
1: It, you you do have the uh oh, man. the dick story from Seattle that you can tell us about. I did promise Matt I would talk about it. Well, so okay, I went to Seattle. I had a s I okay, well, I had another Seattle story from when I went last year, and there are well, I mean Seattle is known for their coffee, their Starbucksing and all that stuff. But also, they have these drive-up coffee booths where uh, there are women that wear nothing there, and they serve you your coffee or your tea or your crumpets or bagels or whatever, and they're just buck-ass naked. (laughs) This trip, the trip that I went on a couple weeks ago, was drastically different. Instead of seeing uh, naked women, there were a lot of naked men and I had to go to a couple gay bars, and I've, uh, back in Houston, I worked at a restaurant which was in the gayborhood. Uh It was very, it was like the, the, the most popular gay restaurant in, uh, in town, and so, like, I'm used to it, I'm cool with it, I'm hip, I'm not, like, homophobic or anything like that. And I have been to uh, some of the gay bars around town in Houston, and my idea of a gay bar... And I'm not talking about like a like a going to like a drag show or anything like that, which I've gone to a couple of those to where like with a gay bar, what I'm used to, if nobody is in there, it kind of looks like a regular bar or a regular club, you know, but in Seattle, apparently, if you go into a gay bar, there are penises all over the place on every wall you see a penis they had these a uh, paper mache at least I think they were papier-mâché, moldings, castings of big old wings. Not shaved, no, but these had like pubic hair going all over the place. It looked like a crazy afro on these giant papier-mâché penises. And on top of that, at these gay bars, I went to two of them, uh, one was definitely worse than the other. Not worse, you know what I mean. Like it was more graphic than the other, I should say. But they had gay porn playing at the uh, on, on the wall. And I was telling my friend, it's like, you know, I've... You know, I, I was kind of caught off guard going here. And he was like, well, yeah, I mean, this is a gay bar. So it's like, I don't... I I, I I, don't know. Maybe, like, I was going to the very tame gay bars. And maybe, like, the Seattle gay bars is where you have to go to really experience the... Wow. Okay. The real Sandblasters, I guess. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what I get for going to a bar called the Donkey's Arm.
0: <laughs> so, no, I, I actually... Let's see. I'm trying to think. I've been to last time I was in a gay bar was when I was in New York. So it's been it's been a long time. There's actually one that was a bar that uh, some friends of mine were part owners of. Uh, it was called Uncle Sam's Bar over on Twenty Nine Twenty. Oh yeah, so,
1: actually I've been there before.
0: And, and yeah, yeah. And that one has been converted and it is now a gay bar. It's called The Room. And um, I've been dying to go in and see what the changes are like. I just want to see, because I have been there a million times when it was Uncle Sam's, so I've been dying to go in. I just have not had an occasion to go check it out yet, and all my friends are too chicken to go with me, and one of these days I'm just going to drive in there and see it by myself, and I don't care. Well, Matt, when I'm in town in July,
1: we will dress to the nines in our fabulous clothing, and (laughs) we will carry so much Quilted Northern with us. And we will go into the room. I I
0: think actually that's going to be more of a puffs plus lotion place.
1: Why why do you say that?
0: (laughs) Well, don't guys usually use the puffs to clean up after, right? Right. Don't, don't, you know you're more right? that's knowledgeable why guys, that's than why, i am that's why, why the most subject. guys have puffs they have the kleenex and the jergens lotion you know hidden away in their room like where the where women usually have their vibrators and dildos and stuff guys usually have the the lotion and the so that's what you know right you, you really
1: be, you, you're really knowledgeable like you really know your lotions and your you know your your towelettes <laughs> you clearly
0: didn't get to the U porn portion of episode sixty nine on uh Midnight Movie Nights. I soon, I, I did China not. Like I well, oh, said, well actually some history about yeah. Red Tube. Then, Okay, yeah. Red Tube for those thing? of you who are who listened to that, uh who were either there for the live broadcast and thank you, or have since listened to it, yeah, Tim is clearly not caught up yet. So yeah. Me talking about this stuff at this point after the U porn discussions or <laughs> this is perfectly tame by those standards. So yeah.
1: Well, since we're on this I guess, subject. Um, there's one thing I did want to mention, and normally with Weird of the News, I send it to you to read. Uh, but for the sake of time, I'm just kind of going to go ahead and zip through it. This is from Dangerous Minds. Uh, and Matt, I, th- I immediately think of you whenever I see this stuff. Um, the title mm-hmm. of this article, again from DangerousMinds.net, is Because Love Never Dies, Put Your Loved One's Ashes in a Glass Dildo. And it says this... In 1901, Dr. Duncan Um MacDougall began a series of experiments wherein he placed elderly terminal tuberculosis patients on massive industrial scales, hospital bed, and all. MacDougall weighed six subjects before and after death and concluded from the post-mortem weight loss that the human soul weighs 21 grams, hence the name of designer Mark Sturkenboom's memory box. With 21 grams, Sternkenboom has managed to create an opportunity for a truly libidinal morning experience. This kit comes in a sleek job scene case, openable only with a key that doubles as a lovely pendant necklace. Inside, you find an atomizer bulb to spritz your beloved's perfume a set of internal speakers to amplify music from the iPhone dock in the back, and a blown glass dildo containing a tiny urn for ashes. 21 grams of ashes, to be precise. Stark Boom describes the project thusly. 21 grams is a memory box that allows a widow to go back to the intimate memories of a lost beloved one, After a passing, the missing of intimacy with that person is only one aspect of the pain and grief. This forms the base for 21 Grams. The urn offers the possibility to desire by bringing different nostalgic moments together, like the scent of his perfume, their music, and reviving the moment he gave her her first ring. It opens a window to go back to the moments of love and intimacy she is able to have an intimate night with her sweetheart again. End all quotes. There's more there, but you get the gist. Yeah. So, Christmas gift for your wife? I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna give your wife for Christmas. Why aren't you gonna give
0: my wife a dildo that holds my ashes?
1: Well, that would be perfect, though. <laughs> I'm, Glad you and my wife are having these discussions. <laughs> should, <laughs> yeah, we we talk about it on the daily. Should
0: I should I should I give uh, your special lady friend a call? I haven't talked to her, you know, for a while. Maybe we should discuss. <laughs> well, well we, maybe we should have that discussion. I guess. Well, you know,
1: that's got to be good therapy. Yeah. <laughs> we we should just send it to everyone we know. That's what. Okay, so we were talking about earlier, like if we had. You know, two hundred million dollars from the budget of the upcoming good times movie? No, two hundred thousand. Oh, two hundred thousand? Okay, yeah, well I'm pretty sure we can buy at least three of these for two hundred thousand dollars. I don't know oh, how I'm much sure. it is. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and we just send them off to him. people.
0: Like Glenn yeah. Beck. Who knows? Do no, yeah, but it would have to be like we'd have to pick the most outrageous names we could think of and like put them in a fishbowl and then draw those names at random. You know, I think it would be really cool. Why is Peter Jackson getting one? I don't know. We pulled his name out of half. <laughs> so. <you know. laughs> yeah. Mm. So, mm. outstanding. Yeah. Right. Well, so I guess we won't talk about my week cuz Oh shit, how was your week? I totally <laughs> forgot. I know. <laughs> well, we've been we've been way sidetracked at this point. Let's just keep <laughs> going with it. Uh let's see. So, after our recording last week we got an email so i was really excited about that email apparently uh wednesday was a really big day Uh, we got an email that day um i got into a huge car wreck in my brand new car Oh, so upset uh thankfully i was not at fault no one was seriously injured and the other driver was ticketed and uh found at fault at the scene were you reading the email no, no, no! Wait, I was during the, the email. during the car crash. No, I, no, no, we we were we were good. I, I, I was definitely in the copaesthetic position. Oh, shit, man! Uh, I didn't
1: realize it happened. I feel yeah, I feel bad. So
0: basically, this <laughs> the the other driver tried to cut a from a from a stop at a parking lot where the exit of the parking lot has a cement median that forces you to turn right. Decided to instead of turning right, gun across, gun across. Four lanes of traffic to get to the left-hand turn lane that would then put you on the other side of the road, Um, and that the other driver did not make it.
1: So so far, I'm glad we kind (laughs) of we didn't lead this into the penile (laughs) (laughs) uh, ash Uh, dildo discussion. Yeah,
0: so that's that's where we are on that, I guess. So that was my week. It was pretty hectic and crazy. From there on out. So, shall we, sh- should I go ahead and do this email real quick? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So, uh, Diana, remember Miss, Miss Weeks? She got, uh, she, she sent us an email a couple weeks back and said that she was gonna go see, uh, Furious Seven. And she did finally get around to seeing that. So, she wrote to us at, uh, you know, the show at slscast.com if you want to send us an email. And she said, uh, hey guys, sorry for the late review, busy with a move. Uh, going in knowing it's going to be outrageous and implausible with gigantic plot holes made this an enjoyable experience. I basically went to see the stunts and wasn't disappointed. Love the flying cars. Holy chitty chitty bang bang. Would have liked to, uh, would have liked some funnier lines from Roman. Nice tribute to Paul at the end. I liked the overhead view of the cars taking two different paths at the fork in the road. Got choked up, but no tissues needed. Cheers. Diana Week. So, thank you very much, Diana. We appreciate that little review. And again, if you would like to review anything or comment on anything or, uh, you know, even just say hello or, you know, why the fuck are
1: you doing this? And Diana, you if like? you ever do get choked up and eat tissues, ask us and we will <laughs> 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 gladly send you. you some puffs plus lotion. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. So thanks again, Diana. Really appreciate it for your Furious Seven review. Glad you enjoyed it and, um, you can definitely, if you haven't heard it yet, you can go back and check. It was like episode 120 or something like that, I think. That we reviewed that movie. Maybe it was like 122 or something. Ah. It's, it's within the last like five or six episodes. Go ahead and check it out. You can, you can see our scores on that. So there you go. And now the news. All right. So I guess, um, I'm just going to briefly announce, to start off the news, um, I got this from EW.com, or Entertainment Weekly. Uh, it's courtesy of Mark Snedeker. and McGregor to play Lumiere and Beauty and the Beast. So that's the latest casting announcement on that. Uh Really the only thing I... Other thing that I really, really wanted to talk about. So this is going to be my main movie news piece, and if we want to talk about other movie news pieces, I've got backup stuff. But this is from Channel4.com. And... uh it is, I guess, ostensibly courtesy of Krishnan Guru Murthy. Um, and here it is. Robert Downey Jr. walks out on Krishnan Guru Murthy. A Channel 4 news interview with film star Robert Downey Jr. comes to an abrupt end when the questions turn to his family and colorful past. There is a video. It's six minutes and 55 seconds. Feel free to watch it. It's the entirety of the interview. So, you know, you can check it. Check it out. In London to promote his latest film, Avengers Age of Ultron, Robert Downey Jr. discussed superheroes with Channel 4 News presenter Krishnan Guru-Murthy. But when the questions turned to his past experience of serving a prison sentence for drug offenses, the atmosphere cooled dramatically. He declined to explain a comment in an interview with the New York Times some years ago that, quote, You can't go from a $2,000 a night suite at Le Mirage to a penitentiary and really understand it and come out a liberal, end quote. Saying it made sense at the time. Quote, I could pick that apart for two hours and be no closer to the truth than giving you some half-assed answer right now. I couldn't even tell you what a liberal is, end quote there. Um, it then goes on. On being asked if he minded further personal questions, Downey says, quote, you have as much time as anyone else has, end quote. But when asked about his relationship with his father and the role it played in the dark periods he went through, the drug taking and drinking, and whether he feels free of all that now, Downey Jr. shook his head, says, quote, I'm sorry, I really don't, what are we doing, end quote, and walked out on the interview. Um... Now I'm going to stop there. If you want to go and finish the the rest of this, there's a couple more blurbs here. And then they also go into his Tarantino interview where he also almost sandbagged that interview. I really don't think that this guy is doing this on purpose. I I think he's I I think he's trying I don't think he's trying to sandbag these guys and I don't think that he is trying to be rude or inappropriate for the sake of rudeness and inappropriateness. I think he just is missing the point of these junkets and is trying to pad his interviewing resume so to speak. So it's not just, "Oh, what do you think about the movie and how did you like the movie and uh you know, what do you think about the themes from the movie blah blah blah." blah. But then he can, he wants to try and tie it to more serious issues which they clearly don't have the time to get into and he's doing it to kind of be like oh i want to be the next barbara walters i want to be the next diane sawyer or whatever the british equivalent of that is because unfortunately i i I don't know um and you can see that really yes you can see in this video that Robert Downey Jr. is definitely getting irritated and you can see like, you can literally see like his face is kind of getting like this. Are you fucking kidding me right now? Look on it. And then you can see him like starting to breathe heavier. And so you can, I mean all body indications are he's, he's getting irritated, but he is definitely controlling himself and you know, he's not yelling or screaming, getting out of control or anything. But the person who I really think is pushing this is I don't know if it was his publicist, his assistant, or whatever, but RDJ's has a handler in the room, and you can hear her kind of in the background, and she's the impetus for getting him to leave. Now, whether or not she knew he was about to get really upset and just like, oh, you know, pull the plug now, now, or not, I don't know, it's almost kind of rather not really here or there for me. But I just really, really... I, it, I just really wish that this interview could have could have been salvaged because I kind of liked where uh, Mr. Guru Murthy was was kind of going with it. I think he was taking it to a, an extreme that he should not have taken it to, but I do actually like how he was juxtaposing the idea of Iron Man, the character, versus how rdj is viewed in a public persona and again contrasting that with his private life and how that character has evolved how he has also evolved as a person and so i can i like those kinds of themes because it does it touches on the seriousness of the themes that uh we get to when we were talking about like with captain america winter soldier how they were discussing more serious themes in those movies and it's not just about comic books and it's not just about action uh, they, they are trying to kind of step up the game in an entertainment sense so i like that this guy is trying to reach out and grab these themes i just think he's took it too far but it's really kind of weird it's i i do encourage you to watch the video and come up with your own and draw your own inclusion please share that with us but what do you think tim
1: have, have you even seen this video do you do you know much about this uh, I've heard about it. I heard about it, but I didn't actually watch it. I'm not, I'm not, I guess I'm just not really into watching people like Robert Downey Jr. get upset, but it, it's, what I mean, what I've heard you talking about, that's actually the first uh, you're actually the first person who's explained it, that, you know, in this way, that the interviewer well, you know, he kind of had a reason for asking like these questions or kind of bringing up you know, some of his past to kind of tie it into characterization or whatever. So it's definitely interesting, but you know, it's definitely a lot more interesting than when Kate Blanchett was giving her junket interviews for Cinderella. And one question that this guy asked was, how did you get that? How'd you get your cat or how'd you get the cat to stay still and act well along with you? And Kate Blanchett got pissed <laughs> off and was offended because his question was about the cat that she just got up and left. So, when it comes to stuff like this, <laughs> this one is definitely more interesting. So, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, I would definitely encourage you to check out this interview. Um, and then in the same article at the bottom is the same guy. It's the same interviewer talking to Quentin Tarantino right after uh, Django Unchained came out. And you can see him doing the same thing. Except they recover. They were They're able to recover, which was... Which is good, but um, it's like the guy just doesn't know. It's almost like you can see that he's got things that he wants to say and things that are definitely cogent to the conversation. But it's like he just doesn't know when to stop and just and he just keeps trying to keep going. So, well, he's definitely know. making headlines. Yeah, and maybe and maybe he's just smarter than all of us, and that's and that's all he's doing. That's why they keep sticking him in the room. <laughs> so uh yeah, but uh channel 4.com so feel free to check that
1: out. What do you got there, Tim? Alrighty. First up for me. So back in two thousand and seven when it was announced that Heath Ledger was gonna be the new Joker in Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, there was a huge uproar. A lot of people, a lot of the DC Batman Joker fans out there were pissed off they couldn't believe they couldn't comprehend the idea of Heath Ledger being Joker then when the trailer came out people felt better about it and of course he went on to receive the academy award and you know now it's you know pretty much universally loved his portrayal of the Joker Now, as we all know, Jared Leto is the new Joker in the upcoming uh, DC villain movie. So when it was announced that Jared Leto was going to be the new Joker, people, I mean, it was actually a warm reception. People thought that he would do well as the Joker, given his performance in um, Dallas Buyers Club, which he won the Academy Award for. You know that he's a good transformative actor to where he can become a character and do a good job at, uh, at, at doing so, at playing somebody else. Up until now, up until a, a few days ago, there's only been little clues as to how Jared Leto would look as the Joker. You saw his hair, you saw his complexion a little bit, and there was even a little bit of a uh, a clip of his voice. I think he did a like kind of did a, the, his Joker voice at a concert or something, but nothing full fledged. Until this past weekend, which, to celebrate the Joker's 75th birthday, the director of Suicide Squad, David Ayer, tweeted the first official picture of the Joker. And I gotta say, people are not happy about it at all, because uh, the picture features uh, the Joker. He has the white complexion, he has the green hair. Um, However, he is wearing a grill He has a J under his eye, which kind of resembles a teardrop uh, tattoo, which one would get in prison to symbolize that uh, they killed somebody. And he pretty much just has all these prison tattoos. Uh, Some of them work, and for me at least, some of them do not. Especially this one tattoo he has on his forehead that says, Damaged on it. And to me, at least that screams out, you know, that's a little too emo for me. But then again, to be fair, we don't know how his character you know, how he's actually going to portray the Joker in this movie. He did come out and say that it's going to be more of a Shakespearean character, so who knows? You know, who knows how it's going to turn out? Maybe all this will make more sense. You know, maybe some of these tattoos won't be in the movie. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Uh, Do you have any strong opinions towards this first picture of the Joker?
0: Oh, I thought it looked cool. That's about it. So none of the tattoos bother you, like oh, all the fuck, well, hahas or are damaged? No, what the, I mean, who gives a flying fuck? It's supposed to be an insane person. Okay, looks good. Supposed to be an insane clown-type person um, with typically greenish, purplish hair. Um, yeah, I think they got it so far. In other why-the-fuck-do-you-really-care news from MSN.com. Courtesy of James Krugnail. Jeremy Renner and Chris Evans apologize for slamming Scarlett Johansson's movie character. Yeah, you heard that right. Movie character. It's a a fucking joke. Alright, anyway. Jeremy Renner and Chris Evans have apologized for calling Scarlett Johansson's Avengers character Black Widow a slut and a whore. I'm sorry, a quote slut, end quote, and and a quote whore, end quote. See their statement uh you can their video There's a video here you can watch the video that's got all the original shit in it uh quote yesterday we were both asked about the rumors that black widow wanted to be in a relationship with both hawkeye and captain america we answered in a very juvenile and offensive way that rightfully angered some fans i regret it and sincerely apologize and quote that was from uh chris evans Renner also said he was sorry, quote, I am sorry that this tasteless joke about a fictional character offended anyone. It was not meant to be serious in any way, just poking fun during an an exhausting and tedious press tour, end quote. Um, Now, I think Renner hits it uh, much more closer on the head than the diplomatic apology given by Chris Evans.
1: All right, um, let's see. I'm going to just mention one thing real quick uh, before I get to another bigger thing. Dom... Not Dom, but Don M. Mankiewicz... shit. M-A-N-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z. Mankiewicz? Dies. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Oscar-nominated screenwriter. Novelist was 93 years old. Um, He was credited to writing... Marbus Welby, M.D., episodes of that, as well as TV's Ironside. He also was nominated for an Academy Award for his screenplay of I Want to Live. Born in Berlin, German Minkwitz Began his career as a staff writer for The New Yorker and novelist, publishing his first novel, Trial, in 1954, which was later made into a film starring Glenn Ford and Dorothy McGuire. He received an Oscar nomination for a screenplay adaption of I Want to Live, a 1958 film about a prostitute falsely accused of murder... It was loosely based on the true story of Barbara Graham, who was put to death in California's gas chamber three years earlier. Um, And I just read that from a Deadline article. Don M. Minkovitz dies. Oscar-nominated screenwriter, novelist was 93. The piece of news uh, from this week that really jumped out at me, because uh, just, I guess this past year, Matt and I watched... Two films by this director, uh, one of them being *Your Next*, which was his take on the, uh, which was a which was a, a very fresh take on the slasher genre of films, as well as the movie *The Guest*, which was a take on the late '70s, mid early to mid to late '80s, uh, kind of like low budget thriller flick. Uh, and this is from ScreenCrush.com, and it's entitled *Death Note*. Live action film coming from the team that brought you the movie The Guest, written by Britt Hayes. And it says that director Adam Wingard and writer Simon Barrett are keeping pretty busy following their well-received genre features, Your Next and The Guest. Up next, the filmmaking duo are working on a new horror movie called The Woods. And before that project is even wrapped, the pair have already selected their next, Death Note. A live action feature based on the popular Japanese manga. A Death Note movie has been in development for a while in the US over at Warner Brothers, with Shane Black previously attached to direct. According to THR, The Hollywood Reporter, Wingard and Barrett wrote a script for the adaptation, which Wingard will now direct after he completes work on The Woods. The original manga inspired both a Japanese film and a sequel. Death Note follows a student who discovers he has the ability to bring death to anyone whose name he scrawls in a powerful, supernatural notebook. Sensing a heroic opportunity of sorts, he then decides to write down the names of people he thinks deserves to die in an attempt to rid the world of evil. A detective investigating the mysterious string of deaths begins to pursue the student, resulting in an intense game of cat and mouse. End all quotes. Um... And I gotta say that uh, I'm super excited about this, not because Wingard will be directing, but because I always thought for years, ever since I first heard of the manga of Death Note, uh, probably about 10 years or so ago, ten, 8, eight nine, 10 years ago, I just thought the concept of the movie was so cool. And it definitely deserved a really good adaption. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Matt, are you familiar with Death Note at all? Do you know anything about uh, that manga? Or any of the, I I think it was like the Japanese film versions? Yes, I uh, I watched the Japanese anime. Ooh. They also have a live action one, which...
0: They do. I don't know if it's good or not. I don't think I would have watched that. Because after watching the anime... Uh, it's pretty much ruined for me. I don't see how you could do a live action version of this movie. I'm still looking forward to it. I mean, not, it's not because <laughs> of, well, don't get me wrong. It's not because of the subject matter. Yeah. It's because of the demon aspect and everything. I, I mean, there's no way you're going to be able to pull that off effectively
1: without retarded CGI.
0: And it's going to look, I don't, I don't know. Well, we'll that's see. why, that's why
1: we'll I see. think it, it deserves a great, adaption because the Japanese uh, live action movie the CGI is horrific now again but if
0: you're gonna but even still if you're gonna do an adaptation then you I don't know you'd have to figure out a way to do an adaptation without the demon and he's kind
1: of the crux of the whole damn thing so no I see I disagree I think it it can be done I'm sure it can be done and I think if anybody can do it I think it'll be Wingard and Barrett hopefully hopefully So, we'll see.
0: Right on, man. All right, well, then this is it for me, sir. Let's see here. Uh, also from MSN.com uh, via Deadline, courtesy of Dominic Patton. Netflix defends Adam Sandler's satire after Native American actors walk off over script. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, over two months since The Ridiculous Six was hit with a crew member accident, the Netflix comedy is now in a cultural storm. About a dozen Native American actors off, walked off the New Mexico set of the Adam Sandler pick on Wednesday over depictions in the script. They are saying that the Western was insulting to, quote, Native women and elders and grossly misrepresented Apache culture, end quote, according to reports. However, Netflix says that it is part of what Ridiculous 6 is supposed to be about. <sighs> a spokesperson for the streaming service says, quote, the movie has Ridiculous in the title for a reason, because it's ridiculous. It is a broad satire of Western movies and the stereotypes they popularized, featuring a diverse cast that is not only part of, but in on, the joke end quote um, sources say that despite the exiting of the Native American actors there were no there was no interruption in filming on the feature now for those of you who are wondering what they were um, Sandler's character Tommy aka three knives these are some of the jokes uh, a white man raised by a Native Americans since childhood is married to a woman named Smoking Fox. A recurring joke refers to her as Sweet Zoom Zoom." Um, female character named Beaver's Breath is propositioned by a male character asking, hey Beaver's Breath to which she responds how did you know my name? Um, let's see here. Uh, there are many there are numerous instances of crudely punned pseudo-Native American names like Five Hairy Moles, One Eyebrow and Four Pickles um now some of the jokes have transitioned because the script was originally done in 2012 versus what's being filmed but i mean if it's supposed to be a dumb adam sandler movie that makes fun of all things western then wouldn't it stand to reason that they're going to use dumb jokes of all kinds and granted they're only focusing on the native american ones for the purposes of these people who are upset but I'm sure there are going to be equally crude, dumb jokes on hicks and people with no teeth and whorehouses being terrible instead of you know uh, the the neat dance hall looking places that you see in like Blazing Saddles and stuff like that. I mean, there's going to be all these jokes that are like that throughout this movie. I, I don't know. I really just think that they're dumb. I, I don't know. I. I think they're just picking the wrong fight this time. I don't I don't know. But that's just me. I think these people picked the wrong
1: battle. What do you think, Tim? I, you know, I think this is it's kind of like a fine line sort of thing with me. Like, it depends how it's done. Like, a lot of people are comparing this to Blazing Saddles. And I don't think this is anywhere in comparison to Blazing Saddles, other than the fact that, with Blazing Saddles, he brought up the issue of race through, you know, telling a a spoof on on Western films, and he did it in a Mel Brooks is who uh, what I mean who is what I mean, and also Richard Pryor helped on the script as well, you know, but they did it in a very witty, in a very well done way, to where it was very tongue in cheek. Uh, though they did throw away, you know throw around the N-word a lot, but again, the African Americans in the movie were in on it too. In fact, he said it just as much as most of the other people. You know, I, I guess I just I really like that movie because of how tongue in cheek and how witty and well done it was. To uh, you know, in, in its in its uh, not necessarily in, in its objective, but in its way of kind of like breaking down uh, social or racial barriers. Now, I haven't read the script. And I haven't seen anything else about The Ridiculous Six other than, you know, what the the whole Native American issue here. But if it's anything like any of Adam Sandler's other films, it's probably just going to be stupid. And I understand it's, you know, they're calling it a satire. And, of course, Netflix is going to back the movie because they're the one that is backing the movie financially. and They want it to do well. And also Netflix is like, okay, well, you know, everybody will listen to Netflix and shut up. As well as Vanilla Ice, because apparently Vanilla Ice is part Choctaw Indian, and he's, like, totally Choctaw Indian when you look at him. He's, like, probably the whitest Native American there is. But, you know, I, I think it just depends on the jokes and how they are done, and or I guess, and how they are not portrayed, but how the jokes are executed in the movie, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's hard, it's really, it's hard to say, I guess. I mean, I'm not one that gets offended easily, but I can totally see why these guys are taking, taking offense. And I think also it's not necessarily the offensive material in the script, but also how they were treated by uh, some of the some of the, like the, like the PAs or the, like the assistants and the director it was kind of being an asshole uh, to the Native Americans who were trying to raise their concerns. So I think it was just, it's also a whole bunch of other stuff other than just the material in the script.
0: Well, I'm sure we'll find out when the movie comes out on Netflix. So, ah, nine oh might. All right. Well, in that case, I guess that's going to bring us to three square. three square. All right. So last week we did our favorite underrated actor, picked some movie, picked a few movies by him uh, there, and um, speaking of which, Miranda, thank you for bringing that up on the show on saturday appreciate that she she thought that uh she also felt that my pick of josh hartnett was uh was a worthy choice there so yeah and um this time around we are doing our favorite actress and then i will go first so my pick uh for my favorite underrated actress is Carrie and Moss Canadian actress, definitely best known for playing Trinity in the matrix trilogy. However, she has definitely done some amazing work outside of that. Now, my three favorite films, uh, that she stars in outs and none of them are matrix movies. So, ha ha ha. To those of you who think I'm going the obvious route. Um, These are films that definitely show amazing versatility and range. And yet she takes the complexity involved in these roles and just distills them into just a great performance. And yeah, I can't wait to share them with you. So first up is her first, this was actually one of her first films, right, that came out right after The Matrix. And it was Christopher Nolan's breakthrough movie. Uh, I'm doing these in uh, chronological order, by the way. Uh, so from 2000, it's Memento. And this is the film, again, uh, Christopher Nolan's breakthrough role, uh, or breakthrough film, rather. And it stars Guy Pierce as a guy who has short term memory loss and is trying to basically solve uh, a murder. Carrie-Anne Moss plays someone who is close to him, but in a sinister way. How do you really know? Very well played out. Very well thought out. Uh, the film is just brilliantly shot. It's got uh, awesome twists and turns throughout. Leaves you guessing all the way to the end of the film. And I love the way that carrie Ann Moss pulls off her character. Next up for me from 2007 is Disturbia. And this, of course, is the Hitchcockian thriller. Um, it, this film is heavily inspired by Alfred, uh, Hitchcock's Rear Window. It is a mystery horror thriller kind of film. And of course, it stars Shia LaBeouf and David Morse as well as Carrie Ann Moss. It's, um, this was in the height of, Shia LaBeouf when he was sane, and um, it's really good. It's uh, it's it's got its flaws to it, but her character, she actually plays Shia LaBeouf's mom in this film. I think her character is clearly one of the standouts in this film. And again, David Morris does a really good job here, also. But the movie itself holds up really well overall, despite its flaws. And I heavily enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and. Absolutely, once again, Carrie Ann Moss proving why she's such an amazing actress. Last but not least from me, 2010's Unthinkable. This is a suspense thriller film. It stars Samuel Jackson and Michael Sheen as well as Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann Moss actually plays a field agent, uh, for an FBI special agent who is tasked with bringing in and helping to um, uh, interview shall we say, a suspected terrorist who uh, they believe has planted a bomb uh, in a major metropolitan area. Now, this film goes into a lot of deep, dark areas, and especially after the whole waterboarding thing came out with um, Abu Ghraib and all of the stuff that happened throughout Iraq, and regardless of how you feel about that or where you land on the political spectrum... This movie is just insanely intense. And watching the evolution of Carrianne Moss's character from the start through the finish, as she's being played against her sensibilities and her morality by Samuel L. Jackson uh, and Michael Sheen. Is it's just something to behold. And she and she handles it really, really well. I mean, it, this is probably the most complex character I think I've ever seen her play. And the film itself, it literally leaves you drop, jaw-dropped almost to the whole damn movie. Um, and holy crap, it's just good. So please check out these films. Check out her work. She is definitely more than just The Matrix. Uh, yeah, so Carrie Ann Moss from 2000, Memento, from 2007, Disturbia, and from 2010, Unthinkable.
1: What? So, so no Pompeii? <laughs> no, sorry. Did no. you ever see her in uh, the movie Fido with her in it?
0: No, I don't think so. Hang on, I'm looking that
1: up real quick. That's with uh, Billy Connolly zomb- when he's like the zombie and it's back in the oh. 50s and she's like the the domestic housewife who... You know, you know, I
0: saw some, I actually saw bits and pieces of this. I, I have not seen the whole thing together, so I would not make a judgment on that. But it, I remember liking what I saw of it, but I just never got around to actually sitting down and watching the whole thing. Yeah. Is it is it really funny? It's, um,
1: the the concept is interesting. And it's, it's, all, it's fun because it's like, it's the spoof of the 50s, you know, like the, like the, 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 the like, I mean, I mean, like what you would see like in an old serial reel, you know, of the 50s. So very, like, stylized, and it's fun. It's fun. It's interesting. It's a little independent movie also, so. Nice. Yeah. Uh, right. And Pompeii was a joke. Pompeii's a piece of shit, so nobody uh, no, nobody was going to watch that. I mean, no, I don't, th- did you watch that? No, no,
0: no, no. Oh, okay, I, my my about, company made like, it, I, and it's still a piece of shit. I know we shit. weren't going to watch it, so yeah. I was like, I just didn't know if you watched it just because you were bored or something.
1: All right, well, what do you got <laughs> for us, sir? <laughs> All right, so my character, this is to make up for Ewan McGregor last week because apparently Ewan McGregor just doesn't do it for people. He's, he's too well known, I guess. Though I still think he's uh, under the radar when it comes to people's favorite actors. Uh, so I decided to go a little bit more under the radar and, uh, and check out uh, Catherine O'Hara. That's right. Catherine O'Hara was born in 1954. She is a Canadian and she is, I, well, she's not best known, but I think for the older folk and me, she is best known for SCTV, which she did in 1976. And I think it was SCTV Network, which was in 81 for a couple seasons. Uh, but SCTV, that's where, you know, like, John Candy was on SCTV. You know, just all the guys that, uh, from Second City, you know, who, who all pretty much went off it to do Chris Guest's mockumentaries, they all worked together you know, with Catherine O'Hara, and she is an absolute delight. So I pretty much broke it up into three categories, my three picks here, and uh, I'm going to mention a couple movies extra, but I'm definitely going to stick to three in particular. Now, when I first knew of Catherine O'Hara, I was a young tot, And I remember watching Beetlejuice and the Home Alone movies, and being young, I thought, my God, she can really pull off that mom character. You know, she has that sass, she loves her kids, she can be sweet, you know, and she just does it right, especially in Home Alone, when she just yells, come on, just really that ear piercing, you know, and then she just faints. Absolutely hilarious, you know, she just plays that great mom character. Though I'm going to stick with Beetlejuice, because unlike Home Alone, where she plays the more traditional, you know, loving, caring mother, in Beetlejuice, she is definitely darker (laughs) and more stuck up and a little bitchy than what she would later do in Home Alone. And again, you know, she plays the mom character. She has that dark humor, and when Beetlejuice suddenly appears at the end of the movie, or when he does finally appear at the end of the movie, god, just her reactions are hilarious, and just that whole bit of, you know, ten minutes is just absolutely classic, and a lot of that I owe to Catherine O'Hara, and just her facial expressions, and, you know, everything she learned from SCTV, she just pours that into her roles, and that is definitely one of them uh, that is most clear, I suppose. Now the second type of movie that Catherine O'Hara, Catherine O'Hara <laughs> that Catherine O'Hara is involved in is uh, are, are, are a lot of animated films, uh, CGI movies, or uh, in this case, Nightmare Before Christmas, puppets, puppetry, stop motion puppetry, stop motion animation. There you go, stop motion animation. So Nightmare Before Christmas came out in 1993, and she was the voice of Sally, the love interest of Jack Skellington, and. She played this character as tender, you know, tender-hearted and loving. And really, the only scary part about Sally was her look. And really, her look wasn't that scary at all. And what's great is that, because of the voice she gave Sally, you were able to understand why Jack was in love with her. You know, it gave us a reason to love her alongside Jack Skellington. If, if that makes any sense at all. And what's great is, is that she was one of the characters, or I guess she is one of the actresses, that the voice she created perfectly fits the character that she is portraying. It just worked beautifully. And for the one or two of you that has yet to see Nightmare Before Christmas, get on that because she is great. And then the the third type of movie that Catherine O'Hara is a part of are the Christopher Guest mockumentary films. She has been in all of them. Uh, Other than Spinal Tap, she was in Best in Show, Waiting for Guffman, A Mighty Wind, Uh, For Your Consideration. um, I was trying to pick, you know, decide which one I was going to pick for her performance. I ended up picking For Your Consideration, that came out in 2006, But I was really heavily considering A Mighty Wind. Uh, That is the movie about the folk singers get together to do one big, pretty much like a, a live folk jamboree. And her and Eugene Levy play this folk duo who kind of had this on and off again relationship over the past like 30, 35 years or so. And within the past 10 years, they became like estranged and they reunite for this concert And that is when the relationship starts to kind of rekindle a little bit. And they sing a beautiful song that was written by Mike McKeon and his wife. I think it was called, like, A Kiss at the End of a Rainbow. Absolutely beautiful. And her performance was delightful. But the movie I will talk about, the Chris or Guest film that I will talk about, is For Your Consideration, which came out in 2006. And this movie is about a group of people that get together to make this low-budget movie. And... It's rumored to be an Academy Awards contender, and a rumor goes out before the movie is even completed, uh, they're still working on the movie, that some of the characters, some of the actors in the film, uh, especially Catherine O'Hara's character, which she plays Marilyn Hack, will be nominated for an Academy Award. And so it shows you the process of them making this movie and everybody is, you know, everybody's ego comes out once they find out about, you know, the possibility of them winning an award and it's just funny 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 stuff. And she plays a pretty much a has been actress who was once popular or once kind of semi-well-known by playing a, pro- a blind prostitute in a film some years back, who she's trying to make her resurgence in the mainstream media and she's hoping that this will be her chance at the limelight, I guess, is with this performance and she has so much stock in this performance in the very idea that she will win or get nominated for an academy award that that is the one thing her character is fighting for what's also interesting is that this movie kind of mirrors Catherine o'hara's real life as well because she was once well known in the late 70s 80s early 90s and then over the past 15 years or so she's kind of flown underneath the radar again by doing some uh, voice work and having like little stints doing like guest appearances on various sitcoms and whatnot and what was also interesting about her role in For Your Consideration is that she did such a good job with this character I mean just blew me away It, it definitely showcases her acting chops more so her dramatic chops than her comedic chops because you can really see this real person You know, like, I mean, there are real actresses out there that are so self-absorbed with wanting to be in the limelight and being known and being loved for being an actress that when it doesn't happen, their life is ruined. And at the end of the movie, she kind of has to make that choice of being okay with not being in the limelight and just being like an acting coach for example, you know, but she did such a good job that there were rumors when this movie came out that Catherine O'Hara would actually be nominated for the Academy Award. Unfortunately, she did not get nominated for an Academy Award, though she did deserve it. So yeah, I think I rambled on enough about how much I enjoy Catherine O'Hara's work. Uh, again, the three movies I chose were Beetlejuice from 1988, Nightmare Before Christmas from 93, and For Your Consideration, which came out in 2006. Catherine O'Hara. Outstanding. Outstanding.
0: All right. So that's going to bring us to the end of Three Squared and bring us to the movies. But before we go there, we'll talk about what we're going to do next week. Our bonus segment next week is going to be a discussions with Matt and Tim. We're going to be talking about the cool.com article uh, put up by user Quint. Now, this is a blog entry, uh, but it is still an editorial and definitely pretty darn good. It is called Why Dark Endings Matter or How the Mist Got it right. So naturally there will be some spoilers involved, especially for the movie The Mist, so we advise that you see that movie or skip that segment next week. And now officially, here we go folks, it is The Movie Alright, so, movies this week, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, The Skeleton Twins, and Obvious Child. Where do you want to start, sir? How
1: about skeleton twins?
0: All right, we're gonna start from the bottom up, apparently.
1: Well, at least for me,
0: anyway. Um, yeah, skeleton twins, 2014, uh, dramedy, starring Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, directed by directed by Chris. Uh, I'm sorry, Craig Johnson. Um, this is a film about two. Uh, I guess fraternal twins, right? Sure. Are they twin? I c- I could never really gather that. Are they twins or not?
1: They're. I think they're twins in the sense of they're just fucked up. Okay. Well, there you go. They, they share that in common.
0: Gotcha. All right.
1: <laughs> it was never. It's
0: never really made hundred percent clear. But they are brother and sister for sure. I mean, we we know that. Um. All right. So. Uh, We have, uh, Milo, who's played by Hater, um, and Maggie, played by Wig. They are brother and sister. Maggie is about to off him, off herself when she gets a phone call that her brother actually has tried to off himself. So, she goes and talks to him. They, they, she convinces him to come back and stay with her for a while to help him kind of recover and all that good stuff. Um, they, go and uh, enter Maggie's husband, Lance, played by Luke Wilson, who um, is the brother of someone who tried to kill himself. I don't know. And you basically get to see that these people both have, both Maggie and Milo seem to have some pretty shitty lives, both by their own design. Now... Whether or not you want to, I mean, and and it goes into that. Uh, she's cheating on her husband with, um, w- with a yoga, you know, scuba instructor. Yes, that's right. I almost said yoga. She's cheating on her husband with a scuba instructor. He goes and she sees, did. She did cheat on him with a yoga instructor, though. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna get to that, but yeah. Oh. Um, meanwhile. Milo goes and meets up with uh, a buddy of his, played by Ty Burrell, um, and they were they, they, they were lovers once upon a time, and Rich, played by Ty Burrell, he, he has since got a girlfriend, and he's got like a 16-year-old son and everything, and, you, and basically, you kind of see this uh, relationship try to rekindle and everything, but then, of course, the uh, all of the idiosyncrasies and the baggage that comes with the lives that these people are interacting with come back to bear on Milo and Maggie. Um, now, I'm not going to go into too much more detail other than that, just for sake of spoilers, but safe to say... Maggie and Milo are their own worst enemies and they are definitely their own worst frenemies. I don't know if you can really have that in a family, but that's about the way it is. They, they constantly sabotage uh, their own lives and each other. Now, for me, this movie is very well acted. The characters themselves are excellently acted and in terms of writing characters i think that these are well-written characters as also now the problem that i have with this is that when you have despicable people just in general despicable people with nothing redemptive about them that do nothing but spread a cancer throughout their life and the people that they interact with with no true consequence or anything to ground it other than just you're watching these people live their lives for me it I feel like I've wasted my time now I will stress again please let me stress that on a technical level it's good it's good direction It's solid writing, and it's good acting. But the story and the characters themselves just completely ruin the whole experience for me. Um, So I'm going to come in on this one at two and a quarter stars. All of the stars that I'm giving it are based on its uh, technical merit. But for me, I did not like the story. I do not like these characters at all. I didn't really find much funny about the movie and it really kind of left me wondering why the hell would anybody want to deal with these people and if that's the point of the film then congratulations it succeeded but for me i felt like i wasted my time two and two and two, two point two five stars from the
1: director of the brothers bloom brick looper in the upcoming star wars film <laughs> we have skeleton twins I have to agree. I mean, these aren't really the greatest people. Uh, but, but actually, I'll start off with saying that the acting here is really, really good. I thought Bill Hader gave a stellar performance, and I thought Luke Wilson did a really good job as well. I mean, he plays a very likable character, which makes what his wife does to him, without really any consequence, that much more irritating. Because whenever I see Luke Wilson in a movie, especially in, in this film... I wonder why more movies do not feature Luke Wilson, because he's actually a really good actor, and he is funny as shit, without going over the top. And at times while watching this, more so Kristen Wiig than Bill Hader, they would go a little over the top. And whenever there was something dramatic, the drama would get a little bit too dramatic. There we go. too a little. I guess blatantly dramatic, I'll say that. And the same way goes with the uh, film's direction as well, with the music, with the very kind of like indie camera movement as well, and uh, the the indie, uh, I, I guess I could say like the cloudy picture distortion as well to kind of like show you that oh you know this is an indie movie and this is how this this is exactly how this character is feeling without the dialogue expressing that or the character expressing it to which the audience can understand oh yes well we don't need all this snazzy stuff to really force feed what's going on down our throats when we can have the characters doing it for the effects i guess And that is where the bulk of my issues come from. The movie kind of clashed with itself at times. Also, a lot of heavy issues are brought up in this film. You know, uh, whether it be through characterization, various characters, or even uh, certain plot developments. You have infidelity, you also have underage rape. And nothing really comes out of it, like... You hear about it, and then that's kind of the end of the movie already, and you're like, oh wow, are these characters going to continue doing what they do like the next time around, or did they learn from it? And I'm totally fine with characters like this, where they don't learn a lesson, but I, I think I need more of a... I don't want to say like obviousness of, like, these characters aren't gonna learn their lesson. But then again, I don't even know if that's the case with these characters. I don't know if they learned anything or not, other than that, you know, the bond of brother and sister will not be broken again. Maybe, possibly, who knows. So, yeah. That's kind of my blasé review without giving away way too much of this movie. However, I did enjoy this movie more, so, and I give this one 3.5... Out of five. Uh, Again, it's funny, and Bill Hader gives a stellar performance, so... Recommended. Where would you like to go from here? How about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? Alrighty.
0: Now, this is a 2014 film. Um, It's an American film by virtue of it being... um, I guess done in American style, I suppose. But it's really kind of an Iranian film. And this is... I, the best way I can describe it to you, I, I found a really good review. It's from azcentral.com. Uh, the review of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, bold, unique, courtesy of Bill uh, kuntz And he says this... It's time to dip into the movie critic bag of cliches. A girl walks home alone at night is like no movie you've ever seen. To risk sounding even more like a used car salesman, let's go further. This time, I really, really mean it. Okay, maybe this is overstating the case. Maybe you have seen lots of Iranian vampire post-punk love stories filmed in black and white. My apologies, but even if that is the case this surely is among the best and that's pretty much i mean you've got to pretty much hand it to him he really does say it uh iranian vampire post-punk love story filmed in black and white it's also part western kind of um it's yeah it's a crazy ass movie It's, it's set in a town called Bad City, and there is this, the girl basically is the, more or less the, the vampire, I guess, um, and she's hunting all these townspeople, but oh my god, this movie is just, just crazy all over the place, um, I haven't ever... I truly have not... I mean, this is... It's it's original. Uh, it is definitely the most interesting take on vampire movies that you will see in a long, long time. And... Man, did I like this film. I think, though, that... Given the heavily... The heavy Iranian focus to it, and the fact that this is the first outing directorially for uh, Anna Lily... Emma Poor, who is the director, I feel that people are giving her a lot more credit than if this was not... It's kind of like everybody's qualifying it as, oh, it's so great for a first effort. And it really, really is. But I think that while the stylization is fantastic and the story is just redonkulously unique in my from my point of view I think that such a huge cross and clash of visual styles and storytelling elements makes it a little bit hard to follow sometimes and I and and honestly just a couple of minutes here and there it's not uh, it's not anything that is going to just totally ruin the movie for you or anything like that But I have got to say that the vision here is amazing. And I think that I I truly believe this is not going to be a one hit wonder. I think this is the start of something great. But because of the mishmash of, I feel just a little bit too much of the different visual styles that kind of throws you off a little bit. I've got to pull the five star rating. It was so close. So close to being five stars. And it would have been the first five-star movie all year for me. But it's only 4.75. So you must see this film. Get out there and see this movie. It's fucking awesome.
1: I hated it. Hated it. I'm totally kidding. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, this is a really good movie, especially for a first-timer, Anna-Lily Amirpour. And this movie, in a way... It has a influences from one of the directors that we covered last week with another vampire movie, Only Lovers Left Alive. Jim Jarmusch. Um, this movie is heavily influenced by a lot of uh, a, a, like Italian esque you know westerns in a way, but Jim Jarmusch movies as well. You have. The single camera, long shot, just letting the scene play out, and there's not a whole lot of dialogue, but there is a lot of movement and a lot of silence and a lot of I don't want to say I don't want to say that, you know, scenes are slow, because I don't consider that at least I don't consider that a bad thing, but I know a lot of people have like a negative reaction when they hear about, you know, a movie that is slow paced, oh it has a lot of slow scenes in it. But there's a lot to the scenes, you know, it's like whenever you look at a a very like minimal minimalistic piece of artwork. This movie is is kind of just the same, but instead of it being full on Jim Jarmusch, she kind of created her own like Quentin Tarantino-y style and feel to it with the use of uh, of music, for example, and a really interesting use of slow motion because the movements that they do in slow motion almost looks like it's super well choreographed. Like, we really want, during this part of the song, we want this part of the body moving, and we want to create this picture, and we want the frame to be set up perfectly so it looks, no matter how long the slow motion carries on, it'll look really good for the duration that it plays out. So stuff like that was very interesting, and I gotta say, for the first half of the movie, you know, they laid down an excellent foundation of style and intrigue, as well as curiosity, because you don't really know exactly where this movie is going, uh, is heading towards. I mean, you definitely get a feel of inspiration, like the various directors and films that she got inspiration from, but then you're getting used to her distinct flair that she's trying to incorporate as well. But in really my only complaint, and unfortunately it's a big comp well, it's not necessarily a big complaint, but it took off a full star. I thought the second half of the movie doesn't really didn't really add too much to the first half of the movie. Again, like I said, first half of the movie, excellent foundation, established the style, the intrigue, and the curiosity. Second half of the movie didn't really follow through with it. It's still very good. I give it four stars. But I really wanted the more. I, I really wanted that follow through, and I just didn't get it. Now, with saying that, like with Only Lovers Left Alive and a few other movies that we've talked about the past couple weeks, this is definitely uh, definitely one of those movies that you can go back and watch, and it might be so much better the second time you see it. So, I think. Actually, I'm going to give this one four point two five because it it definitely deserves it. A whole lot of hard work was put into it, and I am most definitely looking forward to seeing what Anna Lily Amirpour does in the future. So, four stars for me. Right.
0: Well. Okay. So, Obvious Child is the one that has left a 2014 rom com written and directed by Gillian Robespierre, or Robespierre, however you want to do it. Um, and this actually stars. Uh, Jenny Slate, which is was very refreshing to see this young lady uh, in something other than Parks and Rec, because that was the only thing I'd ever seen her in, so I was totally in, not expecting it. And she it. is
1: annoying as shit in Parks and Rec. Exactly. Oh, so my God. I,
0: was, I mean, which is fine, because that was the character and everything like that. So I. Was, oh, but if
1: I hear her say, money, please, one more... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs>
0: money, please. All right. Um, yeah, so Jenny Slate... Jake Lacey Gabby Hoffman, David Cross, Richard Kind. Um, yeah, so you got lots of actors that actors and actresses that are new upcoming, some that you've seen heard. Um, and basically what we have is a young lady who gets uh, rejected right after performing so she's a comedian, gets uh, and works a uh, comedian, an aspiring comedian by night, bookstore employee by day. She is rejected by her boyfriend after a set, gets drunk, and is definitely, um, not as much fun. Meets up with a guy after. Uh, this guy is a, uh, I, I guess he, he's, um, He's not in the, he's not like an agent or something, but he was there with clients or something like that. Didn't see her set, but they meet up later and, uh, they, they end up hooking up, having a one night stand. And then, of course, she discovers that she is pregnant from said one night stand and, oh, what to do and how to work it out and what's gonna happen here. Um, I, I like the, okay. This is one of those films that was kind of tough for me to watch, mainly because of the subject matter that's involved. Uh, I. That being said, the movie is likable. I, I think that the um, watching I, I was probably just really so blown away by Jenny Slate playing a different character <laughs> that had, you know kept me back. I also liked David Cross's character a whole lot in this film. He was i have been seeing a lot lately or feeling a lot lately that david cross has been starting to become kind of typecast for me in the roles that he gets and so for me i felt this was a nice refreshing change from the kind of stuff that we've that i've been seeing him in lately um jake lacy i thought does a really good job in this film as max and it was a very natural chemistry and i think that that's important in this kind of situation But for me, the overall scenario that they found them in, I don't know if it, it wasn't, it wasn't that funny. Um, and I like that they take something uncomfortable and that, and they find the humor. I mean, because that's what comedians do. And I, and it was interesting to see how, how much pain and turmoil goes into that comes from the life of a comedian goes into their comedy and how that translates to their real life and it's really interesting to watch that is the the dynamic that the director pulled out of this is truly truly awesome but for me i did i i just i didn't find the whole one night stand pregnancy thing i I don't know I, i just didn't find it as funny as maybe they wanted it to be and i think that especially as it plays such a large part in the final act of the film and its closure um i don't know i think they could have i think they could have done something a little bit different i i don't know what exactly but i f- i just really feel like the the film needed to take a different course if it had taken a different course, then I don't think we would have seen kind of the darker side of and the and the and the more hurtful side of comedy um, that causes these people to think that the way that they do. So I, you know, you got to take the good with the bad. All in all, though, I give this movie three and a half stars. I do like the movie, even though I didn't. I guess because as someone who looks at things in such a cynical way sometimes and ha- and is very sarcastic. Um, And has had, you know, just like everybody else, has had their fair share of shit happen to him uh, that's life-changing forever, no matter what. Um, There's still stuff to relate to. And I think most people will find that in it. Three and a half stars. What do you got, sir? Bring us home.
1: The type of comedians that I'll never fully understand are the observational comedians... You know, that are not afraid to openly talk about anything, no matter how immature and ugly it makes that person out to be. And those comedians, they expect the audience to accept it. And that's how Jenny Slate's character Donna Stern is. And personally, I feel that way towards those comedians because I also think that there aren't that many good ones, you know, that actually do it. Like, I love, I'm not familiar with... Uh, Uh, with Jenny Slate's comedy, her stand-up comedy. But I am very familiar with David Cross's comedy, and I absolutely love his observational humor because he's really good at at it, and also he's very, very witty. But there are a lot of others that I just don't get. They're more crass, without the wit. That's pretty much how Jenny Slate's character of Donna Stern is in this film. The character she plays isn't fresh i mean we've seen it before like we've seen this character before if not in another indie kind of comedy then in real life real life comedians the same can be said with this movie in general we've seen renditions of these characters and some of these stories within other films i mean you have juno for example dealing with pregnancy and what to do with a baby you know and being too immature to uh have a baby and you know trying to be a grown-up when Technically, you should—well, I mean, in, in this case, with uh, Obvious Child, she should technically be a grown-up, you know? And I guess a another relatable film, when it, it comes to older characters acting as children and faced with a situation which renders them to grow up, is a 2011 film called Friends with Kids. That one pertains to two friends that don't believe in marriage, however, they want to have babies— Or they want to have a baby together, and so they decide not to get married, but have a baby. And it shows you um, the ups and downs of taking that route in life. Both of these films have these cynical and unbashed characters who thinks they know a lot more until they really don't. uh, Usually during the third act of the movie. Out of all these films, though, I enjoyed everything. Obvious Child, so, so, so much more. Even though I might disagree with certain choices that the characters in the film, uh, in, in this movie make, I actually felt more for the character, for Jenny Slate's character. And I really wanted to see her grow by the end of the film. And I was impressed by her performance, big time. Jenny Slate created a character that I find both annoying and utterly charming. It's a difficult balancing act to get that sort of character right and for the most part she does it pretty damn well and pretty damn consistent throughout the entire movie also the humor within the movie works though it can be crass and overly unforgiving at times most of it was justified and it fit the the situation that was happening throughout the film and the same can be said with the uh, with the, with the more dramatic and serious moments as well you know it was justified and it fit the situation unlike Skeleton Twins this movie felt more real, like these were real characters that, uh, or like this was a real situation that these real characters would have to face at some point. Again, it was justified and fit. It was well handled for the most part as well. It was more organic than seriousness being serious for the sake of being serious. But unlike the before mentioned movie from 2011, Friends with Kids, you were often forced-fed the drama in heavy moments, one after another, especially when big decisions had to be made. Obvious Child dials that back. With drama, there's also humor. Uh, The same goes when the big decisions are made. There's still humor. Good humor, for that matter. Again, some of the humor works and some does not, and to me, that helps make this film work. I mean, for a first-time director and writer, Gillian Robes-Pierre delivers an impressive, I think a very impressive film, and she demonstrates an impressive talent behind the camera and through her storytelling. And also, I thought the ending of Obvious Child makes more sense than the film I mentioned, Friends with Kids. Uh, I liked it. The ending was uh, something that was unexpected. I liked the route they took because it was different and... It was definitely more powerful than what would be considered maybe the easier way to take. Film-wise, not talking morally easy or anything like that, but film-wise and storytelling-wise. So I give this one 4.5 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie, and I highly recommend it.
0: So then, next week, our movies are going to be Avengers Age of Ultron. What If and
1: We Are the Best!
0: That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Those are the films for next week, and I believe that that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on Alright, well the music you've been listening to For the intros and segments has been brought to us By our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com And Facebook.com, both Slash Cries of Solace. as for us, we of course are The SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com, you can send us An email to the show at SLScast.com, you can follow us On Twitter at the SLS Cast. you can follow Me, this is Matt, on Twitter at 12345 You can also climb aboard the information super high way track down tim on twitter and follow him there if you like you can of course subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to carrie and moss i get to say this people tell you the world looks a certain way parents tell you how to think schools tell you how to think tv religion and then at a certain point if you're lucky you realize you can make up your own mind nobody sets the rules but you you can design your own life